Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Today, Michael Jones joins us as he talks about private note lending. He is the portfolio manager of First Position Capital. Michael talks to us about what note investing is, how it is used, and gives some specific examples. He also discusses the buying criteria, what a good structure for a note is, and steps and actually how to buy one. So without further ado, let's welcome Michael Jones. All right. Today we have Michael Jones with us. Michael is an avid investor with a specialty in private mortgage notes. Michael, do you want to introduce yourself or is there anything else we missed? No, you hit it right on the money, man. My name is Michael Jones. I run a company called First Position Capital and it's a regulation D fund that invests in performing notes, first lien positions. Yep, That's about it <laughs> in a nutshell. Hey guys, this is Chris Shepard. Note investing is it's such a foreign like area of real estate. I feel like I've got you know the layman's knowledge of most things when it comes to you know a little bit of commercial, industrial, whatnot. But when it comes to notes, I just don't know anything. Like, where do you find them? Who do you buy them from? Where right. like how do you make money off them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> why, yeah, well, why would you buy them? <laughs> right. Why would you do that? Well, you know, like. The biggest buyers of notes are banks, originators and buyers, right? And so to kind of start understanding note investing, I think you need to put your, put your mind into the bank's mind. Like think like a banker. And so where do we buy them from? Well, I'm not a big, big company. So I end up buying my mortgage notes from like private equity funds, some hedge funds, some loan servicers, and some individual investors. So there's they're out there. There's a whole little network. And I think you said, how do you make money on them? That's a pretty broad question. So there's, you can think of it like if I was to split it into black and white, I'll say the black or the bad, you know, when you're in the red, I should say, you're, then you're looking at non-performing loans where people just aren't paying. And so that's kind of like you're flipping that note, like you flip a house. So you're waiting for the capital appreciation, the sale, and a big chunk of money back. And the other way to look at note investing is what I do is performing notes where you're already buying an asset or a mortgage that's been paying for a year or more every month. And of course, the way you make money off that is you buy on discount. And when you buy on discount, you're making money off that arbitrage between what the borrower pays and the additional yield that derives from that discount. So... And it's really so flexible, you know, like I think when people think of note investing, they think of the movie, The Big Short, where there's just banks writing all these crappy loans, <laughs> then the big bad banker taking advantage of the poor borrower. But it's really not that way. You have a lot of power to help people. You have a lot of power to do things banks won't. Like I'll do a loan modification any day. If it means I'll get paid, my investors will get paid and the borrower benefits as well. So it's not so cutthroat. But like banks, they're actually, they're not benevolent, right? They're not, they're not going to help you as much as an individual would. So 
That's another way to make money. So there's like tons of exit options. You can modify a loan. If you need to, you can foreclose on the house and sell it. Or you can hold the note for a while until you want to sell it again and liquidate out. You could have a note and you could liquidate part of the note out by writing a partial note. So it's crazy the flexibility of the note investing. If you're it's a, a geek, it's it's, a whole it's awesome. New world I knew nothing about. Yeah. I'm excited to kind of go in a little deeper on this. But before yeah. we get too deep, why don't you tell us, you know, what gave you the idea? How'd you how'd you get into note investing? Well, like anybody, I was a, probably like a lot of people, I was a gris, disgruntled employee. And then I was a very disgruntled entrepreneur. And I don't think that's even a good word for what I did. I was self-employed. I was driving all over the city with I had my own little tutoring company where I would teach physics and math and calculus. And I was driving all over the place. And I was just disgruntled, like, I'm not making any money, man. So, and I've always avoided the topic of money throughout my life for the most part. And then it became a necessity of like, now how do people make money? Like really make money by not showing up to a job every day. How do people get wealthy? And so that's what got me into the, you know, they say, well, I don't know what the statistic is, but most wealthy people are invested in real estate. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to focus on that nugget. And then I started studying, buy and hold and all this kind of stuff. And at the time in Portland, I was like, man, I need such a big down payment to buy a rental, you know? And I was going to pull the trigger. I'm glad I didn't. And of course, like any horror story in real estate starts out, I went to a meeting and there was a guru speaking, <laughs> you know, and he was like, and he was talking about non-performing loans. And what's funny about this is this guy I went to go see, he has like 16, 20 lawsuits against him right now for like oh shady behavior, wow. right? So like, <laughs> but it got the idea introduced. So instead of going to the traditional route, I saw this one meeting, I read a couple of books and it made total sense to me. And I just decided maybe I'm not such the people person. Like I'm probably not the guy you want knocking on your door going, where's my rent? I need somebody else to do that. So that's why I went into this business. It's, it's I can help people, but I don't have to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, I mean, just for like the sake of our audience and you know, maybe me too, cause I'm asking dumb questions, but like, uh, what defines a note? Like what is like the characteristics of it? Like how, oh, how does it yeah. work? Like super basic stuff here. So yeah, I, mean, I, th like, I think people probably call it all sorts of different things. I'm assuming yeah. it's a mortgage, but. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So a note is like a promissory note. If you pull a $1 bill out of your pocket, that's a note. Yeah. It's a piece of paper that says the value of this unsecured piece of paper is backed by $1 of the U.S. economy or whatever. It could be something simple as an auto loan where it's like, it's a contract. It says, I give you X amount down and based on who you are and your ability to pay and all this, I'll give you this rate of return, which is adjusted for the risk in the transaction. And then it's a promise to pay so many payments over a period of time, right? So, I mean, hard money loans, they're notes. You know, when somebody's, making a hard money loan, that's a note. Because if the flipper or whatever doesn't pay, that note's secured by that collateral. So, and on the flip side, like a credit card, when you have a credit card, that's a note. You're, you're, you have a credit line, you're taking money, 
there's a contract there that says you have to pay this percentage or this minimum amount. But the, so there's notes that are secured. There's notes that are unsecured. Mm-hmm. So unsecured notes are like credit lines, right? Sure. And that's secured. It's like it's secured by auto, housing, Some commercial. Sort of asset. Yeah, or something. an asset. Okay. And so that's what I focus on. When I say note investing, it's, that's what I always think about is secured debt. Okay. I'm not, yeah. So, so I'm in. do you want to run us through like an example of a note that you like purchased or, or bought or a deal that you did? Yeah, I just, I just closed on, I just closed on a deal and I bought two notes recently, one in Akron, Ohio and one in Wilson, North Carolina. Okay. And they're both on single family residential houses that are owner occupied. Okay. And that's one of my buy, cr- buy criteria. Like I want to make sure that the person that signed that mortgage lives in that house. Okay. They have skin in the game, you know? So I bought that probably because they're performing notes and they've been, they've been performing all through the pandemic and all this. So I paid a kind of a premium for those. And I bought those at 85 cents on the dollar, meaning I bought those at 85 cents on the dollar of the unpaid balance. So okay. I'll to make it simple. If the unpaid balance for both notes was 100K, I paid 85 for that, right? Does and that, those notes. Go ahead, no, Chris. Sorry, does that unpaid balance include the interest payments that have. Yeah. Yeah. It's all amort- yeah, it's amortized debt, right? So it's like. It's not just the interest only, right? It's like how we pay our mortgages. It's all amortized. So that's like when you're talking about the unpaid balance, you're talking about, you know, the total amount of all of the payments, uh, all of the interest and all of the principal. So like, you know, if if somebody says they have a $100,000 loan, they're probably making like $175,000 in payments. So easy, easy. Sometimes triple, uh, easy triple that. Okay. Especially I, if it's a that was a bad year, example. You know? No, it's fine. Yeah, when, but you're, you get the, when you're buying that note, it's for the tripled amount, correct? Tripled amount. You mean the total value at the end? Yeah. You're, no, you're only paying for what they owe. Okay. The principal yeah. balance. Yeah. And, you know, so that mortgage was originated at a certain rate. It has a certain number of payments left. This is where mortgage calculators come in. Pretty handy. <laughs> totally nerd out, right? And so what you see is they're paying, say they're paying their eight percent, and it was originated like not all these people have awesome credit. That's another thing, you know. It's like sometimes you got to go where the dirt is, meaning like you can't. It's you can make money on a two percent mortgage, but there's got to be like a lot of things that come into play with that. So you're usually looking for stuff that's been originated. I am, anyways. Looking for origination rates of seven and above. That okay. way, I know when I buy it at discount, I can generate at least nine point nine percent and above. Okay, so the borrower doesn't know any different though. Their their notes sold off at discount. They pay their say their eight percent, and I'll get my ten percent. So when it, I didn't understand what that meant when you said you're looking for something that's originated at seven or above. Yeah. What so that mean? yeah. So. What I'm saying, so when you, when notes come to you as an investor, they just come in a big spreadsheet, you know, they'll tell you the borrower's name, unpaid balance, payment amount, sometimes taxes and insurance. And then it'll have 
what that mortgage was originated at. Like right now, if like we just refinanced, right? We're getting like, I don't know, like 3%. So we refinance our, now our new rate is 3%. So you're seeing what their origination rate is based on all the current data. Okay. When you so buy, it's the interest rate when the loan was originated. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. when you buy that discount, your rate is higher because you're, getting the same amount of payments for, for a lower investment. So a higher return. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. It just gets screwy because of the amortization. Like you get this whole time value of money thing. You've seen the charts. And that's why I think hard money is so popular because it's like, it's really simple. You know, it's like I pay you interest and then at the end, give me back my capital. Right. <laughs> but this is like, yeah, this gets a little funkier. So, but it's, it's not so bad. Like, once you get down the mechanics of it. Okay, so you get you get like a spreadsheet of loans. And yeah. You identify like ones that like you want to purchase or something. Yeah. Like yeah. So like like every investor, like you guys, like syndicators, like flipper, everybody has their criteria, you know. And so I'll look for loans that meet my criteria. The house has to be a certain fair market value. The mortgage has to be in a state that I happen to invest in for whatever reason, right? We just talked about the origination rate has to be this or above. What else? And the loan to value has to be a certain amount. The number of payments left have to be a certain amount, depending on your style of investment. So it's all like some people, just, they buy non-owner occupied defaulted loans, right? Mm -hmm. That's not my game. So I don't even look at that stuff. So it all starts with you get the tape and then you just start tearing it apart, filtering it, saying based on your criteria that you develop over time. And then you go from there. Yeah. So nerdy exercise. Okay. 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 Yeah. So, so you've, you've got one loan you like, like what happens next? Like I, I literally don't know. I mean, I've, I think oh. I've loaned money to people and yeah, yeah. Cured it with a note, but I've I have right. never purchased one, so I'm kind of excited. Like, how? Yeah, what, so, what, are the, what are the next steps? What happens? So the way it goes is this, right? Like, I just talked about my last transaction. They accepted my indicative bid. It's like it's like so getting you, a house under contract. So you right? like you like give them a bid. You're like, I'll pay eighty cents on the dollar for this. Yeah, and they're like, okay, okay or go away, right? <laughs> so these guys said, okay, <laughs> you know, and so then. That was my indicative bid. And then I get all the collateral files, meaning I get the payment history. I look at the title. I look at the Allonge trail. I look at all the paperwork to make sure that everything's cool with that note, that if I needed to foreclose on it, I could enforce it. So that's a big level of due diligence. I make sure that, you know, like a pro forma, like, <laughs> I always joke like pro formas are like, it's just like a really beautiful lie, you know? <laughs> so like, just make them really so, pretty. Right. Like that's a cool font. <laughs> like these, like you get that spreadsheet and like the first thing that, you know, that I learned was like, don't trust anything on that. I mean, you can trust the hard stuff, but when it comes to things that are a little more subjective, like fair market value, do your own analysis. And so during that, period where they accept my bid. I'm doing all that due diligence. I also hire somebody in that area to go take photos of the property. And then I call a realtor in that area and say, what do you think? And I pay, I pay them like 50 bucks to do a drive-by. 
and they'll they'll give me their two cents because they work in that market. I used to order like broker price opinions, and I was like, wait a second, I'm paying like a hundred bucks plus for this BPO, and the dude lives in California, and the property's <laughs> in Akron, Ohio. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not doing that anymore, you know. So I try to get, I, I definitely get eyes on the property. If I find things like there's other liens on the property that supersede my lien. So I invest in the first position. But if there's something like, like a tax lien, that's superior to my lien. So I, I go through all that stuff to make sure there's nothing encumbering my position. Or like a mechan- there's like mechanics liens too, right? Yeah, exactly. So and, I use a vendor for that. Yeah. Pro Title USA. You go to the site, you do an owner and encumbrance report, it's called, just put the address in and they do it. And they do the whole deal. Yeah. It's different for every state, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, sometimes, and you, I can do, sometimes I can do a lot of stuff on my own. Yeah. But then, you know, then it's like, oh, I need a subscription to look at the deed or something. Well, I mean, you, you kind of, with like, kind of glossed over it a little bit, but the due diligence to like, make sure that you can actually foreclose on someone. Like, can you go into yeah. uh, maybe a little bit of detail of what that due diligence looks like? like sure. If, and if so, you were, yeah, if here, you were, have never, I mean, like, I don't think I've ever foreclosed on anyone. Right. I mean, I, right. I, I know that I'd have to talk to a lawyer. I don't want to. <laughs> right. I don't want I to. No, and I want to hear if you have foreclosed on anyone. Right. I haven't so far, but the, I use, I use lawyer, I use a lawyer to look over that paperwork in that okay. state, which is a service of that vendor I just mentioned pro title USA. Okay. They, say, so they look at all this, they look okay. at everything and go, and they give you like, yeah, you can enforce this or you can't. Cause like, is it, is it generally a yes or a no? Or is there like some gray area in there sometimes? They'll tell, they'll tell you if there's like missing paperwork that uh-huh. like maybe you need something called a lost note affidavit, like somewhere along the line, the actual paperwork got destroyed or some, so, some dude spilled their coffee on it or something. And now it's unreadable. <laughs> Like for real, you know, so. <laughs> so is that, can that be kind of compared to like the repair addendum? And then you can go back and be like, instead of 80 cents, I need 78 cents on the dollar. Yeah. So you treat it like, <laughs> you treat it like a court case. That's the way yeah. I think about it. Where okay. you're like, I'm reducing my price. And here's the evidence of why I need to do that. Uh-huh. Like I just found out, like maybe it's like, oh, I found out they're like three years behind on taxes. And when I buy that, I'm gonna have to pay that. So I'm taking that off the top, you know, like you guys should have taken care of that because now it's not what it's, what you think it is. Now there's like a, there's a tax, there's something overhanging your position. So that calls for a discount. Okay. You know? Yep. Or you find out, Oh, they're in bankruptcy chapter 13. Okay. Well, that's a bigger discount. Why? Well, it's, you know, it's a bigger risk. So if I get a bigger discount, I get a bigger return, right? Which means my risk is bigger. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. So what, like, you, you kind of walked us through, you know, how you got into it. A little bit. But when you decided you wanted to do it, what steps did you take to oh. start? And then walk us through your first deal, too. Okay, man. Here's the tiniest world's violin playing for me. <laughs> so I was really exuberant when I learned about this industry. And so, you know, I, I went on Squarespace, I did the website, I made all these like whiteboard and explainer videos. And, and then I went 
ignorantly, ignorance is bliss. I blissfully went and just tried to raise capital, right? And I went to the Better Business Bureau because I'm like, it would be good to have a BBB rating, right? And they're like, we don't think you can do this. I was like, yes, I can. Like, right? Well, I get a letter from the Oregon State Securities Compliance Office. It's corporate and finance. And they're like, we just found your website where we were let somebody ratted me out, right? And I'm, I'm happy they did. We found your website. You can't be, you're selling securities and you're not registered with the SEC. I was like, you know, you crap your pants moment and like start calling lawyers. And that's what I did. And I found a lawyer and he, he said, listen, basically this was his defense. This guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. So, so just cut him a break, right? He's got me now. And it was like a $1,500. I didn't raise a dime of capital. If I did raise capital, that would have been much more severe. But I was just trying to raise capital. So after that, I said, okay, what do I, this is a lot, this is like a lot more serious than I thought, you know? So I found a securities attorney and I said, how do I do this? Like, cause you, you just hearing all sorts of stuff from all sorts of people. And it's like, all I had to do is go on sec.gov and read about it. But in the, when you start investing, it's like, yeah, why shouldn't people just be able to give me money? Right. You know, like, what's, what's the big deal? Right. It's their choice. I mean, anybody can go to Vegas and blow their life savings. <laughs> you don't have to be accredited or any of that. Right. <laughs> so it's like, it doesn't, but I, you know, I, I went the securities attorney route. I started a 506 C and we just, we just closed that last November. And this was July, 2018. So my first deal was November of 2017. Four months after I learned about the whole deal of note investing, you know, so, so four months after I bought my first deal, and I remember it was around Thanksgiving, you know, and it was a total show, man. I didn't really know how to bid. And so the trader that I was working with took pity on me and he's like, this is what we expect for pricing. And he didn't have to tell me any of that. Right. And then I did some calculation wrong and I sent in a bid and then woke up at like two in the morning going. Oh, wait. And I, I like, like emailed him at three in the morning, like, redact my bid. The numbers are wrong, you know? And this guy must have thought I was just like, total newbie, total newbie. <laughs> but I did, I ended up getting that deal done. And I still had that deal. And it was in Columbus, Georgia. And it was a note. I think there was like 35 left on the, the balance. The house is like 50K, really tiny little house. And I think I bought it for like 25K. And it yielded, it yields like 13.2%. So that's a good one. And they pay, you know. But the first time I did it, man, it was like, I just knew though, like at some point, like there's only so much you can learn from just staring at a computer screen. Like you got to jump in, man. And, and that was, when I got through that first deal, it's like, I have, like, I have degrees and all that crap. But I was like, when I did that deal, I was like, oh man, it like opened up a whole new world for me. I was like, man, like that felt exciting. I was like terrified, but we did it, but I did it. Right. And then doing the fund like a year later, almost, I remember writing the investment summary and my hands were shaking. 
Because I knew, I knew it was going to be a, like, you, do, you make these choices in life. And you know if you come out on the other side, you're not going to be the same person, right? So that's terrifying sometimes. It's like, but yeah, that's how I got into it. I'm, I mean, I'm still in it. So <laughs> that's crazy, man. It's been a crazy four years, I would say, for sure. That's pretty awesome. So just to clarify, the, the 506C is SEC exemption, and it allows up to 200 accredited investors. Is that correct? I think unlimited for 506C. Oh, oh yeah, unlimited. And, okay. And, and, no accredited, and no unaccredited, Yeah. unfortunately. That's so frustrating. And then with the 506B, it's like kind of the hush-hush one, you know, where you can only – you can have 35 non-accredited and I think unlimited accredited. So that's that is true. AJ and I have done a couple 506Bs before yeah. for apartment buildings, which you're not allowed to talk about. <laughs> hey, talk about that. I know. <laughs> what are you talking about? I know it's so ridiculous, man. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Uh, it's so ridiculous. So, Investments are um, definitely not democratized. Yeah. So you chose to do a fund. Yeah. And so what we've done in the past are kind of asset specific raises. Yeah. And so I guess I'm kind of interested in the fund. How does, you know, that yeah, yeah. Yeah, collateralized like, against a lot of assets or notes. And right. So then you yeah. average out the returns. Yeah. So it'd be, it's, you'd, you'd consider it a blind pool, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a horrible way to put it. It's like, so a syndication, you're looking at that one asset most of the time, right? So like we're raising money on the Malibu apartment complex that has 1,500 units and et cetera. This is like the same deal, except, well, it's not the same deal. You're just raising an amount of capital and then deploying that capital by purchasing, by diversifying through multiple notes. Yeah. So you're just buying a lot of different assets. And the way you handle the specificity of it where it's not so blind is where you just let your investors know, like, this is where I buy. This is why I buy there. So there's some concrete reason they're giving you money, you know, that you have a plan for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like, well, just see what happens. Yeah, no. <laughs> so it's, you're buying multiple assets. And so definitely the difference between a syndication and I guess what I'm doing. So when somebody enters into the fund, I guess, like let's say you just opened up the fund and it's the first yeah. person who enters into the fund and then, you know, you'll continue that raise for some period of time. Like does the person who invests first get a different return than the person who invests last or does everyone get the same return? It's interesting. Everybody gets the same as under the same waterfall structure where for me it's, Everybody gets 9% annualized, and then any points above that, we split. So I, don't, I haven't set up any kind of reward structure like that. I've seen, I've seen structures like that. I think it's pretty cool. But the, I would say the one thing that I did, so the, the first fund I did, I just took capital as it came, and I raised what I needed to fairly quickly, and then I was able to deploy it. This time around, I started this second fund, right when COVID started last year. Mm. And so like raising capital has been a sled. It's been a total, it's been, it's been a tough hoe, you know, 
So I'm just starting to raise more capital. The way I've handled it this time is like, I know if I take somebody's capital, when it hits my account, that's when the interest meter starts running based on all the paperwork and all that. So I'll try to, I, I just try to do a capital call this time, you know, where it's like people subscribe. So that's a commitment. And then when it comes time to deploy that capital, you pray. They still, they had that money liquid, you know? So it's a double-edged sword. It's like some people, like I had one guy in October, you know, I did a webinar and then he said, okay, I want to invest. I said, well, cool. Let's hold off a little bit and let's, we'll do a capital call. And now I'm trying to call that capital. And it's like, it's not happening, man. <laughs> it's like, sorry, tax season. Sorry. I'm like, damn it. I should have taken, I should have taken your money, you know, like, <laughs> But but then but but then you know like oh well then the meter starts nine percent on that <laughs> right and it's like there's economies of scale it's like okay great you know your fifty k is very much appreciated but when it comes to the expense ratios of the investments and it's you know I need more capital to make it all work mathematically and make sense and give us some wiggle room for unforeseen events so I can spend your fifty k but it might not be good for either of us, you know? So that's, that's where it's like, you got to do a uh, wakeboarding boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm, I am kidding on that. That's yeah. We're like, we're uh, making investments yeah. on behalf of our investors. We're fiduciaries. So you, you, one would hope, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you guys. One of my favorite, shows to listen to is American Greed. It's where it's like you hear about every financial scam for the last 20 years. And it's man, that's a you realize like when people trust you, that's there's people that abuse that and use that. And it's it's really out there, you know. And then there's like you really have to take I think if I don't know, I'm not, I haven't been in this business that long, but I foresee that if I want to stay in this business, if I don't have that fiduciary mindset, I'm like, I'm the next little Madoff, you know? I don't want to be that. So, yeah. <laughs> Gotta take that um, people's money, man. Yeah. So, when you got started, you said you, you had a guru, but along the way, have you had any mentors or partners who have taught you what you know? <laughs> I've tried, man. When I first started the first fund, there's a CPA buddy of mine who was retired. And so I was like, let's do this business together. And I had to kick him, kick him out of the company because it was like, you think a dude in his 60s has his stuff together. But I think he was just happy to be retired. The guy partied more than anybody I knew. <laughs> so I was like, 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 we're going to a conference in Dallas, right, for this IRA company called Quest. And and like at the last minute he cancels and I'm like, and it's like you start making those choices. Like I really wanted to take this journey with you, but now we can't do that. I thought people were my gurus, like the guy that I, that introduced me to it. And you know, that guy's got like 16 to 20 lawsuits against him right now. So it's like, I have started looking up the ladder as far as that goes. Like, you know, you guys know there's like, it's crazy that like the real estate investing community, there's like these little pockets and then there's BlackRock, the biggest, you know, like one of the biggest hedge funds. And it's like, 
And there has to come, a, I think there's a time to think like, who do I want to be more like? BlackRock, if I'm to aspire to anything? Or do I want to worry about these, these clicky little RIAs and all these, all these little meetup groups, right? And so I'll be honest, like there's a note community of investors out there. I don't know where they raise capital from because that's like, I don't think it's from each other, but I've, I've like exiled myself from that community and it hasn't hurt me. You know, it's like, I don't have any animosity there. It's just like when people that are investing in, are in this space and it seems like you can always tell how somebody's capital raise is going by how many educational products to put out. <laughs> okay. It's like when all of a sudden you're running an education business in real estate, it's like, I don't know. I don't, I'm focused on raising capital, man. You know, like, so gurus are hard to come by, but there's people I aspire to that run some reggae funds, some bigger stuff, you know? And it's like, I look at those, like anything, when you start, you're like, I can do that. I can do that. And now I look at these guys and I'm like, man, how do they do that? Right? I want to do that. Because I don't want to stay like, I want to like climb out of the masses. Like, you know, I, I want to keep climbing that ladder. Like, not, not to be, because I'm competitive, but it's like, I always want to know, like, how do you do it? How do you scale to that? Like, how the hell do you raise 10 million? How the hell do you raise 100 million? Right? It's like scary stuff to me anyways. It's like, so I'm looking, I should have a guru, man. I should have a mentor, <laughs> but I have not found one yet. <laughs> no. Yeah, I just haven't. What do you think the note market like future like looks like? Like what, what are we going to yeah. be, what are we going to be what seeing come down the pike? Low? I'll give you the, like the consensus, like, which I kind of agree with. Eventually like things that are in forbearance, the, like foreclosure moratoriums, that stuff's going to end. And so people will still owe this, all this money on this mortgage, right? And it's all piling up behind them. And so a couple of things are going to happen. They're going to either have to like some magically be able to pay all that, which I don't think is going to happen. Or the loans will have to be modified or recapitalized. Like I've done this where it's like somebody has like three years of back payments, right? And so you modify the loan. You just take all those back payments penalties, interest, and recapitalize it into a whole new loan and then run it out another 30 years. That's what I think is going to happen is even people say they have 20 years left on their mortgage and it's a 30-year mortgage and they've gone through this pandemic and they've let all these back payments come back up. I think what's going to happen is they're not going to be able to suddenly pay all that. The loans will have to be modified, recapitalized, and run out another 30 years. So it's like, I think we're going to see a lot of 30-year mortgages that have been revived from those modified mortgages. I don't think we'll see a lot of foreclosures. I hope not. Here's the caveat. Like in 2008, right, when all these loans started going bad, typically banks, they're not like in the real estate business. They don't want to hold all this real estate and mow the lawn. and That's not the business they're in. So there's incentive for them to sell it as you know, like real estate owned REO stuff. In this case, I really don't think the banks are going to take on the task of modifying all these loans. And I think what's going to happen, similar but different to 2008, is they're going to sell off these mortgages. Sell the we're gonna, Yeah. 
And we're going to, I think we'll, we'll see a different, where it's like 2008 spawned a lot of, they call it non-performing note investors, where it's like people are not paying. You, you go through that whole thing we talked about where they modify the loan or foreclose on them and sell the house. I think the market we're going to see now is a lot of remodified loans that are classified as probably incorrectly classified as performing or reperforming for a couple of months. So I think by Q3 of next year, I think this (laughs) based on my Johnny, Johnny Carson crystal ball, I think that's, what's going to happen is we're going to see a whole. So like this year, for example, performing mortgages in the market, I'm in the secondary market outsold non-performing mortgages three to one. So people are starting to go not want to take on that delinquent debt, I think, investors. So you're looking for the cash flow. Well, I think, I hope, I really think we'll see a big bump in these mortgages, but it's, it's not going to be the same as 2008. Because like, we've already seen what the government's done. They're not going to let that happen. They're like, yeah. they're not even letting people get kicked out of their apartment, right? <laughs> even though some, even some, some judge from Texas, right, he just ruled it unconstitutional. I don't know if you guys heard about that case. Yeah, that was yeah, it's uh, like, like earlier last week. Right. So does that apply to the rest of the country or what's going to happen there? Right. So, so eventually, Michael, I've got a question. Like what is actually happening with notes that are in forbearance right now? Like let's say that you have, you purchased a performing note and then your borrowers are like, Hey, I, I need forbearance. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm getting, killed here with the economy so i mean is there any relief for note holders not really and there's definitely two divisions there like you might not be able to foreclose on people but the foreclosure moratoriums if i you know i I might be wrong here i'm probably 85 percent sure on this that those apply to government like Ginny may fannie may issued loans so stuff that's been issued by like private banks or people that some notes I bought, you know, from like SunTrust Bank or just using random lenders, those forbearance moratorium, the forbearance doesn't apply to them. They can file for it. I've had borrowers file for forbearance for a couple months and I've said, yeah, that's fine. There's no relief though. Like the difference I guess is sense of notes. Like when I buy, so here's the caveat, like, Oh no, they're not paying. Uh oh, right? Well, what happens is, you know, you're losing money because you're paying a servicing fee on that every month. Okay. However, since notes are typically non leveraged, like I can't go to a bank and say, hey, I'm going to buy like a million bucks of notes, give me a loan. That just doesn't happen, right? So they're non leveraged. So it's like, okay, the borrower's not paying. But like, I don't have to pay a bank to hold my note. I am the bank, right? So I'm losing, I'm losing cash flow. And I know I'm going to have to like do something to make that capital up, like modify the loan when it ends or like what they're going to, even the banks are going to have to do. So it sucks because you're not getting paid, but it's not going to cost you a whole lot. Like you're not paying debt. You're not covering any debt. You're just paying servicing fees to hold that loan. 
and it's a waiting game, you know. And there, so, there'll be a way to make money on that paper. I guess, what do you explain to your investors who, you know, maybe they're depending on that return. Maybe they're living off of it. Right. What do you say to them? Just got to tell them what's going on, you know. Make sure that when they enter into that transaction as investors, I mean, you got to really have, like, like I talk about the pro forma thing, right? It's like, okay. But I, I like to use something. It's not at all popular. Like I've had my buddies tell me, don't say that. But I call it apocalyptic analysis. And I show my investors, here's how, here's the scenario in which the only thing you'll get back is your capital. No interest. That's like my boundary condition. Like Warren Buffett says, rule number one, don't lose capital. Rule number <laughs> two, see rule number one. Right. And so that's my, that's my boundary condition. I say, here's, it's like an anti-pro forma. It's like bizarro Superman. I don't know if you, what, when you guys grew up, but his name was like bizarro Solomon Grungy. Yeah. <laughs> I do that. That's what I do is I say, I want you to know what you're getting into. Here's where you will get your capital back. But if things default, here's where we stand. And this is how it can happen. Because like, I don't gloss over that. I, that's the elephant in the room, you know? So that's the risk. That's investing. What you tell them is, I don't know, like what are syndicators telling investors right now where there's like none of the tenants are paying, right? Like what did, I don't know, you know, Grant Cardone had to do, right? <laughs> he had to like, he had to have that conversation where he stopped. I think in April, he couldn't put out dividends for a while, right? And he, yeah, they had that conversation like, Here's where the market's at. Here's what happened, you know. And hopefully, I think the only time that can really go bad is if you're BSing an investor, you know. And sometimes investors BS themselves. You can be as real as you want with them, but they're like, they're like, yeah, okay, here's the money. That's it. But it's like, no, wait, dude. Do you understand? Give me a yes. Give me a no. That this is how it can go bad. People will throw their money into the market like. You know what I mean? And there's like random strangers who they don't even know. Like, it's crazy. And there's nothing back in their money. So the only security I give them is that, hey, listen, this, what we bought, this note, the collateral underneath it is this home. Yeah. Or this yeah. set of homes. And so that's how we're protecting your capital. Like, yeah, it's things may it's go south. It's all backed by an asset and presumably yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, like banks have been figuring this stuff out for hundreds of years. And so I'll use stuff like credit matrices based on FICO scores to say my pool of mortgages has the FICO score. You know, each loan has a FICO score and my pool has based on all the FICO scores, this percentage that will default. And right. I always use that, you know, always double that. So it's like when it comes to that stuff, I'm, I try to be, it scares the hell out of me to lose an investor's capital. I think I listen to too much American greed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be in an orange jumpsuit, man. You know, like, and I, I, and I want to do what I say. So, yeah, that's a good question, though. It's like, it's a tough question. Well, yeah. I think we're getting on. We should probably get to our four questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with the first one. What's one piece of advice you would give your 25-year-old self? Yeah, 
I would tell the, my 25 year old insecure self that doesn't matter what people think of you it matters what you think of yourself. And I would tell that I just call him a kid. I'm 45 right now, but I would call him a kid. I'd say, stop trying to impress people that don't matter to you. Like first and stop going after stuff you don't want. I would have introduced the idea to that, that kid of how to reverse engineer your life. Say, what do you really want out of life? Be honest with yourself and let's figure out how to get there from where we are now. Instead of this aimless, like getting degrees and trying to figure out this job or that job, totally backwards. You know, I would have taught him to reverse engineer his life. That's awesome. 15 years. Yeah. So growing up, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Okay. I was in Salt Lake City. I used to do the whole wiki wiki electronic music DJ thing and started hanging out at a record shop to the point where I started working there. On my, I worked a seven on seven off schedule as a lab technician. So on my days off, I'd work there. Long story short, got to know the owner and he said, hey, we're going to franchise it to Portland. The, sh- the shop was called Beats. And so I gave him, I wrote an unsecured note, <laughs> nothing back in my money, just his word. And I wrote him 15,000 bucks and says, okay, I'll be a managing partner. I didn't even know what the hell that meant. I think I just watched too much Shark Tank or something. Right. That was my first endeavor. And then I saw the guy taken off, taken out in handcuffs one day. And I never recovered that money. And the, I found out the guy had like six counts of felony against him in Colorado. And he was scamming more than me. He was a total con artist, man. Wow. He was like, he presented himself, just to wrap that up, he presented himself as a Native American shaman. But really, he was just a Hispanic dude from Detroit. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, that was my first. Uh, yeah. All right. How yeah. was your <laughs> How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? So formal training, I went to school as an electrical engineer from Oregon Institute of Technology. And so honestly, going through an engineering program, and I'm thankful thankful I had the professors I had, it taught me that my mind wasn't just for memorizing crap, right? I mean that's most school I went through was like memorize this, spit it on a test. I really got into this idea of like, holy crap, if you apply your mind to a problem, it sounds so silly right now, but you can figure this out. Like you can come up with solutions. You can create systems. Usually there's a way to optimize most things. And so that's what I learned from being an engineer is like taking a methodical approach to solving problems. And and when it comes to the fun stuff, it's like I talked about apocalyptic analysis. That's, that comes from my engineering training where it's like where you, if you have a system, you look at boundary conditions. What's, what's the best it can operate at it and what's the worst it can operate at. And so I've always I've taken that approach. And informally, I think about all the different little things I've done. Like I used to brew beer for Park City Brewing Company. And what else? A sound, I was a sound engineer for a local sound company in Portland doing concerts and monitors and and long story short it's like the informal stuff where you learn on the job that really spawned this idea of like you know like 
so many people make fun of engineers like they got analysis paralysis or some crap like that right well it's like i think i countered that with some real life experience where it's like i don't have analysis paralysis it's like i look at my parameters if they're within bounds nothing's gonna happen if you don't pull the trigger man so it's like that informal stuff taught me that you can start your screen all day and read and go to courses all day. But until you pull the trigger and put your ass on the line, you probably won't learn a hell of a lot. You know, you gotta, you gotta like, everything has risk. So go yeah. for it, man. You know, what so, else are you going to do? Watch Michael, Netflix. You mentioned that you didn't buy that first rental property. Right. And so we have, we have the question, but this can be for like a note or any opportunity really. What was the one that got away? What was your Moby Dick? I would say my Moby Dick wasn't a deal. It would be an investor. I once totally blew it. I had this relationship with a business guy in Portland and he invited me to play poker with all these guys up in the West side. And one of these guys, and I can't mention, I'm not going to mention his name, but he created the Linux kernel. He kind oh, wow. of invented Linux, right? He lives in Portland. And I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going, to have, I'm going to play poker with these guys. You know, they're going to invest with me. That didn't happen. So I've had a couple of relationship things where it's like where you find out somebody has 200K to invest, but they're not accredited. It's like, yeah, you know, things like that. So I guess my Ishmael, like what I'm always seeking though, is getting better and better at raising capital. But because that's, those are the Moby Dicks. Those are always the ones that get away. It's like, how did I blow that pitch? How did I, like, maybe I shouldn't have said that on LinkedIn, man. Like, what, what did I do? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. It's always well, the investors, baby. Yeah, those yeah. are opportunities that do get away. All right. Yeah. Well, Michael, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Like, I know that yeah. I learned a lot about note investing today and I'm still a little curious. So, but of course. Uh, yeah, we I, just it was, brushed it was over really good. We might have to do a part two. This is <laughs> yeah. really, really good stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and your willingness to share. Really fun. Thank you, guys. Uh, if, if any of our listeners like want to get a hold of you to talk about note investing or something like that, like what's a good way to get a hold of you? Well, it's like Mike Jones, the song. Well, I don't know. That's I always get that from people. Mike Jones. My digits are 503-432-6070. Just give me a text. Let me know that you were, that you heard the podcast and we'll just set up a little time to chat. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you, Michael Jones. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.